Hi, my name is Kate Robinson. I am the co-author of Imagine If, Creating a Future for Us All, which I co-wrote with my dad, Sir Ken Robinson. And I'm very excited to be here today with Jackie Cooper for the Touch of Truth podcast. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper, the Senior Advisor and Chief Brand Officer at Edelman. With over 35 years of business experience in brand, creative and personalised strategy. On Touch of Truth, you'll find wisdom from some of the most respected, trusted and successful people on the planet. And it might just make you a little more successful and a lot happier. Well, hello, Kate Robinson. Hi, Jackie. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited for this chat. I'm excited to have you on the podcast. bit thank scary because you. you're a podcast expert. What, an expert? <laughs> And, uh, and I'm not, so I we might know. do a bit of role reversal. Were on this you one. not the one who was on stage at Cannes for like a week straight? I was. You were. Yes. In that case, I'm intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to reveal some things behind some things today. Okay. And uh, are you ready to get started and go on that journey? I am. I'm ready. Let's do it. Excellent. Hello, honesty. How are you right now, at this time, in this place, in your life, business and personal? It's amazing for me to have this conversation with you because you're very special to me. And your father, Sir Ken Robinson, was a hero to me as he was to many, many, many people around the world. But what's amazing is that you've carried on that legacy after we sadly lost your dad too early. But you've carried on the legacy in a way that's extraordinary because you actually built that sort of initiative with your dad in recent years and you're an educator in your own right and you've got a lot of experience in the space of liberating kids to feel that they can achieve anything, which was one of the things that I just loved about your dad more than ever. But it's been a tough couple of years. It has. And amazingly hard and challenging couple of years but you've kept going and you've written a book that you did the start of that book with your dad and you got the book out and it's an amazing success so when I ask this question at the beginning of a podcast which I ask all of our guests it feels like this is a bigger question in a way to to you than to many which is how are you? <laughs> is that and the scariest question you? I've ever been asked on a podcast? <laughs> yeah, how are you now in, at this time, in this place? How actually are you? At this time today? Do you know, I'm going to start off by saying I'm good and then I'll, I'll build on that, I promise. I'm not just going to say I'm good. How are you, Jackie? Um, <laughs> no, I am good. You're right. It has been an incredibly difficult few years, um, obviously with the pandemic, but even more so on my end because dad passed away so suddenly in August 2020. Um, but you know, his anniversary is coming up this weekend. We're recording this in August. So his anniversary is coming up in August, the two year anniversary. And I do think I'm okay in the grand, not okay the way that I was okay before. If you'd asked me two years ago, I would have been a different okay. Um, but in this case, it has been, as you say, it's been very challenging, but it's also been rewarding. I did, um, I don't know if you know, I'm very highly in demand and I did a podcast yesterday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but she asked what my lowest low was and my highest high. And I actually said that 
I feel like all of my lows and highs have coincided. Um, so things like, I mean, my wedding is a great example, which you were there and organized in 24 hours uh, <laughs> because dad was dying. So it was the happiest day of my life. But it was also, you know, six days before my dad died. So it was this incredible experience of feeling very happy and terribly sad at the same time. And I was thinking that with leaving high school when I did was exciting, but also terrifying. Uh, having a baby, you know, it's finally get to be a mother and it's wonderful. And then I got postpartum depression. So I feel like everything's, you know, the book, um, which came out in March of this year, 2022, was this incredible moment to have published a book. But as you said, it was a book I co-wrote with dad. It was his manifesto and he should have been there for it. So yeah, okay is never a good answer, is it? I'm good, how are you? Um, it's always a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, that's what yeah. I love about this question. It's such a scary question. <laughs> it's like, we all go, I'm fine, and then no, we move on. But actually, it's a kind of layered thing yeah. of, of, of good and bad. And you took, you really didn't get the chance to kind of grieve or, no. or deal with the shock. I mean, no one expected for, for Ken to get sick, and no one expected for the outcome to be the outcome. And yeah. then... There's this massive, that, is it hard that everyone loves your dad? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that bit's nice. Um, no, that bit's lovely. I can't imagine if everyone hated him and you had to hear about it all the time, that would be awful. It is hard that my job means talking about him all the time, but it's funny because I can separate him out. Um, so I can talk about Sir and Robinson until the cows come home. And then if we start talking about dad in a personal capacity, that's when, that's when it's much harder. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, I, I threw myself into work when he died because I promised him just before he died that I would dedicate the rest of my life to continuing his legacy. So we went straight into, uh, we organized a 12 hour um, celebration of his life for his birthday in March, 2021. Um, so I just went straight into that and then went straight into writing the book and then took six months off to sort of collapse after that between July last year and, and the new year. Yeah. And how was it with the book in terms of, you know, he was really clear about what he wanted that manifesto to be and he had he such was. faith in you being able to carry on. He did, although if we're doing a touch of truth, Jackie. We are. <laughs> we're I'm doing there, a Kate. touch I'm of truth. There. All right, fine. Um, <laughs> no, he was, but he'd been working on the manifesto for years. I think the original deadline was 2017. Oops. And <laughs> um, I think, you know, I think it was hard for him because the original commission was 10,000 words. And how do you, how do you, sort of get your life's work down to 10,000 words. Um, so when he died, when he was dying and he handed me his draft, this sort of big stack of papers, you know, I was like, oh, overwhelmed. How do I get this down to 10,000 words? But actually when I read, read through it, you know, the spacing got wider and wider <laughs> as the pages went and suddenly it was all just bullet points. Um, there was a lot copied and pasted from previous books where I think he was trying to get his head around what he wanted to write in it. Um, but I didn't know until after he died. So I often think what he felt on his, you know, literally on his deathbed sort of just... <laughs> won't be around to deal with that when that becomes a problem um but it was it was a really it was a gift to write the book genuinely was a gift because it was you know there was agony not being able to ask him for his advice or his opinions or you know did you mean it that way would you put it that way and there's no doubt that we'd have a different book if he'd been alive to actually finish writing it with me but I got to spend three months you know I wrote it in his tone of voice I got to spend three months with him in my head it was amazing the truth test a few questions on truth from a self, human and brand perspective. All right, Kate. So now this is the bit I really like because we're asking the same three questions of all of our guests. And then I think it's kind of cool to compare the kind of responses, right? And see what 
the common denominators are, um, but they're kind of specific to individuals as well because of the type of question. So were you ready okay. for the first one? I'm ready. One? Do it. Let's do are it. Ready? I'm okay. ready. So the first one is, what do you think is the biggest gamble you've ever taken in your life? I love that your eyeballs just went really wide. <laughs> uh, well, because you don't, I don't know how that was going to end there. What do you think is the biggest? It could have been anything. Um, the biggest gamble, it has to be when I left school. So I left school at 16 um, and we moved, I lived in America, in California. You know, in, in England, you can leave school at 16. In America, it's dropping out. You're just, you know, you're not allowed to. Um, but I did it with, you know, I always say it's a very privileged story because I had parents who not only were in a financial position to support me through it, but also understood why I wanted to leave school and actually I think it was their idea um <laughs> but it was you know breaking the mold everyone you know I didn't take the SATs I didn't go to college or university so uh you know I had friends whose parents said they couldn't spend time with me anymore because I was a school dropout you really? know I was the same person I was the week before but suddenly I was a high school dropout so I was you know really? a bad influence I probably was a bad influence but for other reasons um so I mean that was a huge gamble you know we had these rules around what I could do and what I couldn't do so I the, um, I couldn't spend all day in bed. I couldn't run away with the circus. I have these written down still. I couldn't sell my body for money. And I couldn't have a baby with the, with the, with the full rules that my parents specified. Um, but I could oh, basically do anything else. What's going on in their heads that that's the full rules I guess if you, if you look back what kind of a 16-year-old I was, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so what we did was we came up with a whole, we, we call it unschooling now, but we did a whole program of, you know, I did internships and, you know, I was fortunate enough to do unpaid internships, but I'm a huge advocate now for paying your interns because only a very small group of people can do you know, work for free in any capacity. Uh, so I did that. I worked for Miley Cyrus for a little bit and um, I did courses at UCLA Extension, which is a university in California. And it, you know, it, but it was a huge gamble because I could have fallen flat on my face and and done nothing, but actually it was the leap of faith I needed. Um, my parents had a phrase, it was leap and the net will appear. And that was a good example of doing it. We just sort of jumped with two feet and caught ourselves somewhere, somewhere down the free fall. It's amazing. I mean, I fell in love with your dad watching the TED talk, yeah. like millions, literally yeah. millions of others. And he always was such an amazing voice for people like me who also hated school. Yeah. I was terrible at school. I felt like I was in a fog all the way yeah. through school. Um, I left school at 18 rather than 16. And, and I'm, I'm 60 now and I'm still so glad I'm not at school. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I'm still so glad I don't get given yeah. homework. I hated the whole thing. It's not always right for everybody I've been okay no, I was gonna say you've been since. a total failure ever since <laughs> <laughs> it's all been downhill from that point on love to go back and talk to those <laughs> teachers right so I left I left high school a month after the TED talk was recorded so all that I think that was all very present in all of our minds around that time oh, I didn't realize that that's amazing yeah I was at home with glandular fever when dad was in Monterey doing the TED talk and I left the day I got back to school after being sick. Did he have any idea how much that TED talk would resonate, do you think? Do you know, they didn't put them online when he did it. So he was one of the first five that they ever put online. And so he knew it was a big conference and, you know, it's where the CD was debuted and um, the people in the room would be, it was important to speak to people in the room, but he didn't know that they were going to put them online because they didn't at that point. So he, uh, when they sent it to him saying, we're trying this new idea, we're going to put some TED talks online, could we, you know, put yours in? And he showed it to my mum. And her, own, her only feedback, I'm sure she said it was great, but um, she still maintains it's not his best talk. But her, her big feedback was, I wish you'd worn a different shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably not the take out of all the millions it's of people. It's not what other people think when they watch it, no. <laughs> So no, he had no idea when he did it, um, which is when he went back, he did another one in 2010 and that one he was nervous for because the, you know, 
the first one had already yeah that was the sequel you know it was yeah that was terrifying like the second album's the harder one yeah exactly do. yeah amazing um <laughs> right next second question. question what's the worst meeting you've ever been in there have been so many bad meetings, particularly now with Zoom meetings and you're just staring at the clock and they run on. Um, I don't know if this is the worst meeting, but it's a funny one that sticks in my head. When, so my husband and I, Anthony, we have a couple of companies together and one of them never grew as a consultancy or it was before dad died. And we were doing a campaign about imagination and we were sitting with the client and they brought in somebody else. I think, I think we might have taken the campaign from that person um, without real, that is in... Before we came along, they'd made the decision. It's not like we went and poached a client. Um, but this guy came in sort of, you know, trying to show off and, and act like he was a much better choice than we would have been. And at one point in the meeting, he literally turned around and he said, I mean, I know I know ways to get to Sirkin Robinson. As if that was like this big name drop. The most he could do is like, you know, I've got people who know Sirkin Robinson. Are you kidding? No one said anything, which was so fantastic. Just everyone, because everyone, you know, everyone, my dad was a patron of of the client. So um, but me and Anthony just sort of looked at each other and sort of <laughs> carried on and no one said anything and corrected him. We're like, oh, isn't that nice? Good for you. Um, yeah. Did, did he ever know? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, they might have told Matt afterwards. I've never seen him again. But I'd love to feel like good. walking down the street and somebody rang him and said, yeah. and then he you know who that was? Clamped his hand <laughs> to his yeah. head and go, like, oh my, it's the most. Em He's probably somewhere saying, what's the most embarrassing yeah, exactly. moment of my life? And that would be it. That's, that's, an, that's just beyond. Yeah. Right. Third question. Okay. Who's the best person that you've ever met in real life so not on zoom not okay. virtually that real life so you have that vibe with them and it's memorable because they're just the best person for you at that point in some way I mean the really obvious answer is dad it has to be because he was just the best person on earth but I'm gonna I'm gonna think about it and pick someone else as well just take that one as a as a granted, take it for granted. I would say that your dad's one of the best people I've ever yeah. met in my life. I cried when I first met your dad. <laughs> he it has was, that it effect was on embarrassing because he never met me in my life and I cried all over his shoulder. I bet he was lovely about it he though. He was, he was. And then he complained yeah. that his shoulder was wet, but that was also <laughs> very much your dad. <laughs> um, who's the best person that I've ever, aside, aside from dad, the best person that I've ever met in real life? You mean, so one of those, those people who just sort of comes along at a moment when you need them to. Do you know, I had a teacher. I had a teacher at the school that I went to. I nearly said the name of it, and I never do because I, I speak so ill of it. It'd be awful to, to actually name and shame them. <laughs> um, I had a teacher at that school who. So, so I had the whole thing when I was at school about how I was stupid. You know, I was, and, and actually, I found my um, school reports in. We're doing Dad's archive at the minute, and I found my school reports in the archive. It's devastating. Um, and all the letters they sent him about how I was failing this class and that class and they were signing and he never gave them to me. He just sort of filed, but he kept them, but he sort of filed them away. So um, Yeah, and I failed, I mean, I got Ds and Fs and I, when I say I failed everything, but I got an A in chemistry because I'm right, <laughs> so, <laughs> so smart, <random. laughs> I, know. I know, and super intelligent. Um, no, so I got, I got an A in chemistry because the teacher, she took me to one side, she said, you're just messing around in class, stop it and come and meet me every lunchtime and we'll go through it. And um, and I think that was the first glimpse I ever got. You know, my parents always said I could do anything, but you you hope your parents say that. You sort of slightly disregard it. But this teacher who was one teacher in the entire school who um, who actually said, I, I actually believe that you can do better. And I, I'm not sure I remember any chemistry now, but I do remember that feeling of actually understanding. You know, it's numbers. I'm terrible with numbers. You know, it's equations and things. But just that, I think that planted a seed of belief when I really needed 
to feel it amazing I, I look back and I hated school and I hated everything that happened but the teacher that says something that yeah. stays in your mind then you realize that's such a gift to be a teacher yeah. that does that well yeah so I went to a Stanmore sixth form college which was not really thought of as one of the best colleges I didn't get in anywhere else right. by the way so there was no choice <laughs> and it wasn't very good for me academically but it's great for me I mean I wasn't academic I can't work that way my brain doesn't work but I got into acting and I got into having a social life for the first time like I stopped being the strange person in the corner of the room that no one talked to (laughs) and um, there was Mrs Snowden and Mrs Snowden was probably in her late 60s at that time and I remember being on my own in the in the form room and packing all my books up and she said to me Jackie Whatever you decide to do, when you've decided to do it and you know what that is, you're going to succeed. And I remember that. And I remember feeling like, wow, she believes that I'm not a complete disaster. Did you ever get in touch with her when you proved her right? I didn't. I'm sure she's no longer on this mortal coil because she, I didn't, but I do think of her. It's incredibly impact teachers It took me a while to know that I wasn't a disaster. After that, it wasn't like from that day on, I thought I was great. I mean, it took time (laughs) to, I'm still figuring it out, right? But I think that we underestimate when we're young how much we need people to believe in us who aren't just our parents, right? I mean, you want your parents to believe in you, but you also want other people to say you've got a talent. Yeah, and see you pass just a, a result or a grade or, you know, by the boxes that they have to take, but to see you for who you truly are. Yeah. Um, it's incredible. Vision of truth. Can you see the future? Can you change the future now? So if we think about what you're in charge of now, there's a, there's a vision actually that was instigated by this journey that your dad and then yep. you and your dad went on and now and, and you and your dad and Anthony actually because you started to work together. What do you see for tomorrow for this? And particularly one of the things that obviously I'm passionate about and we're working a lot is, is literally that understanding of the Gen Z mm-hmm. cohort and, and what we can do to learn from that generation. The influence of that generation is cascading through all generations. It's cascading yeah. across business. It's cascading across society. It's holding us accountable in ways that we haven't really been held accountable before. And I so wish your dad was here because it would be such an interesting time where he sees younger generations having a voice and not letting the system drive them but questioning the system which is what he helped us do how do you see things going forward when you think about what's next for keeping that amazing inspirational kind of drumbeat of what he stood for what what do you see in the future there are a few things um and the well the first that you're right that it's one of the devastating things about the timing of dad's death is that I really think there's never been a more important time for his message and there's so much hope in Gen Z um I was talking to Anthony about this recently um I'm a millennial I was born in 1989 so I'm a I guess a mid mid not a young millennial but like a mid millennial um which means I was 10 when the millennium happened which means I got like the Venga boys and big brother of the 90s as opposed to the Kurt Cobain of the 90s <laughs> I got the rough end of the 90s um and then I got you know low-cut jeans and Paris Hilton and 
all that kind of stuff all in my job. again, by the way. Oh, please no. <laughs> if there's anything that we don't have to go through again, it's low cut jeans. <laughs> um, but I say that to say that I, I, my, this doesn't speak ill of millennials and I feel quite passionately that millennials get a bad rep quite a lot of the time. But I do think there's such a difference between millennials and Gen Z, which is they really care about things. You know, they're the ones who are striking for climate action, they're marching for their lives, you know, they're the, the young voices of the Black Lives Matter movement, they're the ones who aren't taking any crap from anybody and standing up, you know, they're questioning the patriarchy and gender norms and, and all of these things, which is so important. And it kind of puts what we do as teenagers to shame. Mm. Um, but because of that, I have so much hope for the future. And I think we have a moment in time, you know, every generation has this moment when they're about the age that a lot of Gen Zs are now. And then life, kicks in you know and responsibilities pile up and it gets harder and harder to stick to your ideals because you have to make you have to make you know you have to pay the bills you have to make ends meet um and I'm not saying therefore that you know Gen Z will lose the fire that they have now but I do think like it gets harder to be this pure and passionate about it when the other burdens of life kick in somewhere around your sort of mid-30s um yeah I'm like well I'm 33 so somewhere somewhere around the past five years um we have a role as the older generations in mentoring. You know, it's not about sort of handing the mic and the keys to the car and saying, you drive now, you've got this, you're better at this than we are. It's about, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot to be said for lived experience that can help. So my, my big hope is that the older generations step up and recognize that Gen Z is unstoppable at this point um, and help them maintain that so they never stop because I really, you know, I don't want to put too much pressure on them, um, but they are inheriting a world that's on the brink. You know, we're at, a, we're at real, everywhere you look, we're at crisis point and they can't do it on their own. They have to do it with our help, but I really think that they will. And when it comes to the education point, you know, we talk about an education revolution or creative revolution. And we talk about parents and teachers and policymakers and school administrators. And it's true, but you forget that education is for young people. If they got up and walked out, none of it would happen. You know, the teachers That's are, so you know, it's, it's, it's set up for them specifically. It's not set up for the admin team. It's not set up for the policymakers or even the teachers. It is set up to help children learn what we feel as society they need to learn before they graduate. Um, and if we can engage their voice in the education revolution, then that's when we get a revolution because it's all been very polite up to this point. You know, it's all been sort of conferences and books and people talking a lot about it, often, you know, preaching to the converted. But if we look at how actual revolutions start, and that's what I think the spirit of Gen Z is, is, is revolutionary. Um, I, th I think we can actually make a difference. And I also, I think we have to. Yeah, I think that's so brilliant what you said, because I can see that happening and I can see that in the data that we have. Right. <clears throat> what do you think about your dad's view on that, given that in the manifesto, mm -hmm. imagine if you, you you know, the part of the, the, the that big sheaf of papers that you edited down yeah. was about the planet. Yes. And, and in a way, that's another such a terrible oh, yeah. loss because he was just getting into actually let's yeah. address this it's not just about education in the classroom no. it's about education for a purpose and and the planet part was a new dimension that I hadn't seen before yeah. I read that book so what how did that come up in his head your heads how did what because he again was ahead of his time to to address that and and now poignant and not here so let's just hero that for a second in his name you're right I, you know I think it's a moot point anything we talk about if there's not a planet to do it on you know we can fix the education system but if we're all up in flames then what was that the point such, in doing it that is your dad's sense of humor right there Kate. but it's true um you know and he was very passionate he drew a lot of comparisons between he, he referred to it as organic education and organic farming and it's moved on since 
since that point. So we in in the book, it was one of the leaps I made was take it away from organic, which is now somewhat of a controversial topic and into regenerative or rewilding, uh, which seems to be sort of the way forward with the climate crisis as, as far as we can see about, you know, doing something positively proactive as opposed to sort of changing, um, you know, cutting out things that we existing that we do already. Um, and the parallels then between recognizing that we are living creatures, you know, we survive on the earth, we, we depend on the earth to survive, we, we survive in a very slim amount of conditions, we need the temperature to be in a certain range, we need water, we need sunlight. And actually, there's a lot, you know, we forget, and actually, there's a whole other podcast to be done on childbirth and mammalian instincts and how we try and suppress that when we're having babies as well. But we forget that we're, we're mammals. You know, we forget that we are much like the rest of life on Earth. And our social systems, our cultural systems, our education systems thrive actually in a way that natural ecosystems do. They thrive in a diversity of skills and passions and in the same way that a natural ecosystem divide, uh, survives on a diversity of creatures and, and the richness that they each bring to it. So he drew really big parallels between the environment and our cultural systems, in particular education systems. And, you know, he, he actually was a, he was almost entirely plant-based for the past 10 years of his life. So he, it was one of his sort of quieter passions was the environment. And then he... I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, after his heart surgeries. And I have two uncles who are vegan, who are um, diehard vegan. And the first vegan footballer, true story, first vegan professional footballer, my uncle Neil. But <laughs> um, so it was it was I think it was often a passion. He became more and more involved in the Eden Project as well. So he was on their international advisory board. Uh, but he's right. And I think actually I think the parallels between looking at how natural ecosystems survive is and, and uh, learning and adapting that for our own ecosystems is how we will how we'll make the changes that we need to change and you know, recognizing our own humanity. But actually what that means in terms of the fact that we are all responsible for the planet that we're on. So in terms of our younger generations yeah. and the one of the things that we found out from the gen z data that was the report entitled the cascade of influence of mm -hmm. gen z was that the the sort of impact of that influence was really strong across media social media and opinions yeah. because they have such a natural ability to be in that space and communicate in those channels there's also obviously now a backlash from some of Gen yeah. Z who's saying, you know, I actually need to duck out and you get celebrities saying I'm, t I'm taking holidays away from this because it's actually not good for my mental health. Yeah. So I think it's quite polarizing now and it's going to be interesting how this all settles down. But how do you see the state of social media with that generation yeah. of today and tomorrow? And how do you see the health versus education, the negative versus the positive sort of impact of it? Um, I actually feel very strongly about this because we put in the book, Imagine If, and it's not a new idea. It's something that dad had come across, I believe originally from a book called The Intelligence of Feeling, which I'm trying to read at the minute, but it is whew, a dense, it's beautiful, but a very dense read. Um, this idea that we don't just live in one world, we live in two. So we live in the world that is, surrounds us, the physical world, which exists whether or not you're in it, you know, was here before you were born, we hope we'll be here for a long time after you die. And then there's the inner world, which is the world of yourself and your feelings and your emotions. And that exists only because you exist. And depending on your beliefs, you know, it ends when you end. Um, but there's a, we in the West like to separate these two things out, but there's a huge interplay between those two worlds. So you make sense of who you are in the world. Your inner world is affected so much by your experience of the outer world and vice versa, how you interpret the outer world comes from who you are on the inside. I raise it in the point of social media because I believe quite strongly now that there is a third world that we're existing in and in particular that young people are existing in even more so than we are. You know, we used to talk about digital natives and digital immigrants and 
I was always proud to be a digital native. I'm not a digital native at this point. It's 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 overtaken me. But but Gen Z and the younger generations are, and they're coming to a point where they're making sense of who they are on the inside, their inner world, based not just on the outer world, but also based on this virtual world. Um, and I would argue a lot of them spend more time in the virtual world than they actually do in the physical world, and certainly, you know, the natural world. What's scary about that? Um, well, let me let me start with the positive. What's good about that is is it opens their mind up to so many different things. You know, they can explore the world and learn things. You know, Gen Z using TikTok instead of Google, and there's so much information accessible to them, which is great. What's scary about it is that so much of it isn't true. So if you're, say, a 14 year old girl trying to make sense of who you are on the inside and how you look physically and how you relate to people, and you're comparing yourself to people you see on social media who are always thinner or taller or who are traveling, you know, have been on 18 holidays this year and you've not been on one. And none of it's true because 99% of young people put a filter on before they post a picture. You could be recycling old photos. So my concern around it is how do you form a sense of self? How do you build the foundations for who you are if your foundation's built on quicksand because you're building on unrealistic expectations or on a very small version? You know, someone can make it look like their house is spectacular and they're just using a corner of a room and the rest of it's a dump. Um, so I think there's a, that's not to say, therefore, we shouldn't have it or we should, you know, protest against it. It is just simply to say that I think we as the next generation, as the older generation, can't continue to ignore it. You can't keep saying to kids, leave your phone in your locker at school. You know, don't bring your phone to class. You can't kind of just ban the phone for a couple of hours, but then think it's fine. We have to make sense of it ourselves. And we have a job to teach critical thinking, you know, so that you can figure out what it is that's real and false. A job to, for empathy and compassion. Um, and we have a job, you know, for sense of self so that you're growing up and likes and dislikes and comments and trolls aren't what make you feel like you're a real person or not. Um, so it, it's a big thing. schools and parents have a role with that? Then? Yeah. I mean, do you think schools and parents understand? It's like it's in, it's in our world yeah. that we know that this kind of push-pull, negative, positive yeah. environment with social media is going on. But in your experience, are schools doing enough about it? And do you think parents understand quite what's going on? No, I don't think so. I think there's also, you know, it's an odd paradox, isn't it? Where social media is social and you're doing it for the public. But it's also your phone is a very private thing. You know, Mm. most people are doing it on their phone. So Mm. you you hide it away from your family. You know, you've got something you do in the privacy of your own room or you relate to your peers with it. So, you know, and I said, I just said it, you know, I, I don't know much about, you know, I wouldn't. TikTok is not my natural element. Um, <laughs> I am a millennial, so Instagram is where I'm going. But I, I have a job to get my head around that as well. You know, and I think schools absolutely do. Because like I said, there's, you know, it's not just saying that anymore that, you know, Google can answer any questions you have, which used to be the argument about technology and education was that why do I need to memorize facts? My phone knows it for me. But actually, it's more than that. It's about how do you reach, if you can't reach kids where they are, how are you actually getting to them at all? Because the temporary bit of their lives, more often than not, is the bit that they're with you in a classroom. And the bit that means most of them is the bit where they're engaging with their peers through social media platforms. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because the top age of Gen Z are going to start to get into roles of kind of proper influence you know they're going to get into government roles they're going to get into media decision roles they're going to get into publishing roles yeah and it's going to be interesting as to whether this starts to change because actually the generation that we're talking about who has much more questions to pose the older generations Mm -hmm. and much more criticism of what's gone before I think I hope that their impact will be faster yeah because they're so charged with all the things that we've been talking about today yeah but then you've also got um, you know, in my day job, CMOs who are running marketing budgets of mm-hmm. many millions that impact 
you know, adults, kids, teenagers of all yeah. ages, and they don't understand TikTok. We, we know this because <laughs> I chaired a Did panel, them? <laughs> which was behind closed doors, and we had six CMOs, and they all confessed individually right. before we did this panel that they didn't understand Gen Z. They were nervous about relating to Gen Z, yeah. getting it wrong, getting it cancelled, and they didn't understand TikTok. And then, you know, a lot of us have kids who are in their 20s who show us TikTok yeah. And go look isn't this funny and then there's like a hay bale because we're like okay we've seen it but we're not laughing why are we laughing we don't get it it's kind and of like you don't want to be the dad at the disco who shows exactly. up trying to relate to the kids and be all cool exactly. but you know they're all mortified by you and, and that's what prompted the data because yeah. i thought gosh we've really got to know because if we know yeah what this generation thinks then we can help people who are leading and making these yeah. marketing decisions not to be intimidated but actually work with the generation that's it Right. But also to recognize that they're vulnerable when they're in that space because they're 100%. being judged. They're trying to present a version of themselves that is likable, you know, is going to go viral um, and recognize it on the other side of that phone as an actual person. So it's not I don't feel like it's just about reaching them through social media as much as it is. How do you help them develop a sense of worth and self when their experience of the world is is virtual? Yeah. And I think that the um, big thing that came out for us, which was so fascinating, was they actually want to be reassured, yeah. right? If you think about all the things you flagged mm -hmm. up about the planet and yeah. the challenges that are ahead of them and that the, the, the world they're inheriting is so challenging for them Terrifying. and for the world. Yeah. And they're looking for reassurance. They're looking for, yeah. actually, we call them the generation of sensibility. They're looking for safety. Yeah. And um, this is a sentence I wasn't sure I would say, which Come is on. I had dinner with a priest the other night. Of course you did. <laughs> And, um, <laughs> and he said that he absolutely relates to that data because he said that in all of the counselling he does, the common denominator is that these kids and young, and young adults yeah. are looking for safety. Yeah. And he said in all his years of doing this, and he's also a clinical psychologist, he'd never known so such a thirst for safety right. and such a need for reassurance and that kind of crisis of safety coming from Just hard, 24 you're and supposed under. to look at the older generations to take care of you aren't you your parents generations you're supposed to at the age that they are you're still children fundamentally you're supposed to expect the older generations to take care of you and not only are we not but they're actually seeing politicians and governments make decisions that you know show no regard for their future whatsoever yeah um, and then you know people like me saying that I think the future lies in their hands and they'll fix it all yeah. <laughs> which is why I'm saying you know it's our job to work with them on it you can't just hand it over to another generation but I think that is hopeful yeah. Right. Like you said, you have hope. I think oh, that's, I do. It, it, like, it's, my dad used to always say, when people say no, you know where to start. <laughs> and I think it's like, well, the generation saying no. Yeah. The generation saying no, enough. enough. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Touch of truth. A story that affirms a personal impact on the planet and people because of the truth they shared. So in this part of the podcast, we talk about someone who's touched our lives that because of the truth they've shared or something that they've revealed had a real impact on our lives or the planet in some major way. Yeah. And here between us, <laughs> on the microphone space between yeah. us, is Sir Ken Robinson. I can, he's mm -hmm. here. It's got to be him, right? Has to be him. Yeah. I mean, the impact that man has had on this planet yeah. is extraordinary. And there are many stories like mine where people watch that podcast and 
I mean, the reason I cried on his shoulder when I first met him in LA was because I cried when I watched the podcast because I thought, well, maybe yeah. I wasn't thick as shit. Maybe the system failed me. Maybe I didn't yeah. fail the system. And that's what he made me realise. Yeah. And I was in my 40s when I realised that, so I should have really got my act together a bit <laughs> earlier. How do you feel about that impact that he had yeah. on the planet? He was so honest and he was so truthful and he wasn't always agreed with either. I mean, it's no. like we've talked about what a hero he was, but he took some flack as well because yep. he was so honest and truthful, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. Um, you know, that message that you just said about realizing that it wasn't you, it was the system. I think that's such a gift to so many people. And we get messages all the time from from a lot of parents, you know, individuals saying it's them, but for parents who are worried about their kids to find out that maybe it's not their kid who's got something wrong with them, but it's the system isn't set up to cater to them. Um, just the relief, you know, because you worry so much about your kids. I, I think it is, it has been a gift to so many people. And I think even more than what he said, you know, in the, in the spirit of talking about honesty and truthfulness, he was so authentic. You know, his his persona on stage wasn't a lie. He was, you know, you know, was the same person at the dinner table as he was on stage. Um, and I think that's another reason. It was as much the messenger as it was the message when it came to dad, because you could look into his eyes and trust him. You know, he didn't have an ulterior motive. He wasn't selling a brand. He wasn't he wasn't doing it really for any reason except for a belief in a belief in the mission. Um, and that's really rare. I do think that. I think it's rare to find somebody who's not putting on a mask or a facade to try and get people to like them or he just walked into a room and he was him and he walked on stage and he was him as well. I think the um, comedic yeah. timing as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, you watch him talk yeah. and we were lucky enough to be together at the Roundhouse, which I think was actually the last public talk it was, he did, yeah. right? In person, yeah. And I, I had watched him and seen him a, a lot at that point but the comedic timing was so brilliant because he would give you a message yeah. and then there would just be this brilliant Liverpudlian, irreverent, yeah. take his time joke or wait for the audience to catch up with the naughty thing that he just said. And the love that he got from the audience from doing that and yeah. then was able to go on to the sort of, if you like, the serious bit again... Yeah was just impeccable. I just think that you're absolutely right about the messenger. I don't think anyone else could have got people to fall in love with what he was saying in that way, don't you, you think? You said it to me once. You said the thing with dad is that he'd... You didn't say dad, by the way. You said your dad. But the thing with dad is that he'd... Um, <laughs> you'd leave a talk thinking, I had a really great time. And then it wasn't until sort of 10 minutes later to be like, oh, and that, you know, and, and I learned something and it really resonated with me. Because his, his philosophy was, I remember asking him about, you know, how, what's the secret to public speaking? Because I was nervous about it. And his first thing was he said, trust yourself because you'll never let yourself fail. But the second was just go out and talk to people. Yeah. The people, you know, go out and have a chat. You know, it was never sort of go out and, you know, win them over with a story and then, you know, throw in a joke so they forget that they're in an audience. So it was just go out and have a chat with people. Um, and actually there've been all these videos and, and books written about, you know, his public speaking style and how, you know, he must have really rehearsed and he'd got it down to an expert. And we have all of his talk notes and they were literally sort of three bullet points per talk that was in his pocket that he never looked at. Um, you know, he just, he knew his material. He knew exactly what he wanted to talk about. He knew his stuff. And he just then went out and had a chat with people. And I always loved then if it was in, say me, I think about it, you know, we're, we're here in your offices and I remember being here so often with him. Um, and he'd always pick the quiet one in the room mm. and pick on them. But in a way that made them feel like they were a part of they were part of the room. So he'd tell they were shy, so he'd sort of 
make fun of them a bit so that then they'd relax into the space. But someone else going and doing that would offend somebody. You know, they'd, they'd pick on the quiet one who'd be mortified. Or And I've, I am still to figure out how he did it. I just think it's because there was, there was never any malice behind it. Mm. You know, he didn't... Um, there, there was never any harshness or you just knew it was in such good spirits that anybody would take it. Um, and I've watched people try and do it and it just, <laughs> it just doesn't land quite the same way. But it was authenticity. It was because he was, he was the real deal. And I think it was also that everything he said had such worth, but yeah. he was never worthy. No. You know, he wasn't ever he wasn't above. Or... And I remember going to the Beck conference yeah. where he gave that keynote. Yeah. And honestly, it was the funniest thing because I hadn't really accounted, I think, for how many people were going to watch him. It was literally people <laughs> hanging off the lamps and yeah. sitting on top of each other. And his quietness as he went to the centre of that kind yeah. of, like a little mini auditorium... And he just let it go. There's something about timing, yeah. I think, that was a real lesson. That's that's something yeah. I really learned. From, he embraced from the quiet. Him. He embraced the quiet. Yeah. But you know, you have done an amazing job. Thank you. You have done this extraordinary job of being yourself, but also respecting and heroing and helping everything that you started. You know, with with him as he helped you start in your career, having yeah. left school. It's been amazing, Kate, and I know how hard that was for you to write that book. Yeah. Huge respect for you doing it, and it has been a runaway success. So I'm sure he is literally pleased as punch and proud as hell, wherever <laughs> so. it is, that classroom in the sky, that he's hopefully <laughs> teaching everybody what's what. Yeah. And that this should carry on with everything that you have in your heart and in your head and being an inspiration for education in the wider sense, it's, it's just still a brilliant privilege to have this chat with you. Thank you. Touch of Truth with Jackie Cooper. Follow us at Touch of Truth Pod.